Thank you, choir. I thought an angel had descended during the prelude this morning, Bethany Gannon, wherever you are. Um, that was amazing. So if you're visiting with us, um, I'm not the senior pastor. The senior pastor was the goofy guy doing announcements earlier. This good-looking guy right here is the youth pastor, okay? So at the end of the sermon, if you're thinking, I'm not coming back to this place, do come back because I don't preach every Sunday, which probably we're all thankful for. Um, there's lots and lots of verses that we're going to go over this morning, which is kind of odd for us. Usually we just take one passage, we look at it, we kind of exhaust it. But this morning I'm taking you from Genesis to Revelation for a purpose. Uh, those, all those verses we're going to look at, all those passages are on the back of your bulletin. So, uh, or it's not your bulletin, but on the back of the praise songs in your bulletin. So that way we don't have to flip and look and we don't have to do like Bible drills, that sort of thing. And I'm going to go ahead and confess that my hands are shaking this morning, not because I'm nervous, but in lieu of breakfast, I just drank like a gallon of coffee. So I'm okay. My brain's just like vibrating in my skull. So we'll, we'll be okay. Uh, for those of you that know me, um, know that before I came here to... to take this job, I taught English uh, for seven years at Fort Payne High School up in Northeast Alabama. And for most of those years, I taught British literature to 12th graders. And we looked at this one particular poem, and I'm going to read part of that this morning. And I know when somebody mentions reading poetry, there are some people who are like, yes, poetry. And there are some people like, yes, I can take a nap. Um, But I want you to, to, to pay attention Uh, Because I think this is really going to set us up for understanding what God is teaching us, Genesis to Revelation. This is a poem by T.S. Eliot, who was American-born but spent most of his life in England. This poem was written in around 1922, and one critic describes it this way. It's a long, complex poem. We're just reading one section, so don't panic about the psychological and cultural crisis that came with the loss of moral and cultural identity after World War I. So this poem is not a happy poem. It's dark. It's bleak. Um, and, and I think what T.S. Eliot is capturing here is that feeling of after you've seen war, you've experienced war, and many of you guys who stood up earlier understand this better than I do, It does something to you. It sucks some of the life out of you. You lose some hope. And so as T.S. Eliot is looking at the culture, he feels like that's happening, that the life has been sucked out of the culture, the people, especially the spiritual life. And so he pens this poem that's really hopeless until right at the end of this section. So let me read that to you. And I want you to feel this, okay? And it's, it's, it's lengthy, but feel the bleakness. Feel the, the conflict here with, I really want life, but everywhere I look, there's just no life to be had. After the torchlight red on sweaty faces, after the frosty silence in the gardens, after the agony in stony places, the shouting and the crying, prison and palace, and reverberation of thunder of spring over distant mountains. 
He who was living is now dead. We who were living are now dying with a little patience. Here is no water but only rock, rock and no water, and the sandy road, the road winding above among the mountains, which the mountains are of rock without water. If there were water, we should stop and drink. Amongst the rock, one cannot stop or think. Sweat is dry, and feet are in the sand. If there were only water amongst the rock, dead mountain mouth of curious teeth that cannot spit, here one can neither stand nor lie nor sit. There's not even silence in the mountains, but dry, sterile thunder without rain. There's not even solitude in the mountains, but red, sullen faces sneer and snarl from doors of mud-cracked houses. If there were water and no rock, if there were rock and also water, and water, a spring, a pool among the rock, if there were the sound of water only and not the cicada and dry grass singing, but sound of water over rock, where the hermit thrush sings in the pine trees, drip, drop, drip, drop, but there is no water. Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together, but when I look up ahead, the white road, there's always another one walking beside you, gliding, wrapped in a brown mantle, hooded. I do not know whether a man or a woman, but who is that on the other side of you? This poem by T.S. Eliot is called The Wasteland. And as you read it, you get that sense that there's, it's dry, it's rocky. We want water, we want life. And it just as we turn here, we turn there, we get maybe a little glimmer of hope, but nothing ever comes to fruition. Nothing ever brings that water that brings life. Until right at the end, he mentions, oddly, it seems, this other person who's walking with us. And so I'm going to pose the same question to you that T.S. Eliot is posing in this poem. Who is this other person walking beside you? Because of sin, the world, especially for the Christian, is a harsh place. It's dry sometimes. It's tough. Um, and if I ask the question, who's walking with you, you're church people. Like you, you're going to answer that correctly. But I want you to be honest this morning. In the harshness of this life, do you feel alone? Or do you have a companion that sticks closer than a brother? In the midst of trials and valleys, are you desperate for a glimmer of hope? Or is the one that Jesus calls helper walking with you every step of the way? Life is hard. Which is easier said for this 39-year-old than for some of you. But life's impossible alone. You and I need another. You and I need God. We were made to need God, and to ignore that need is really to ignore our very purpose, the reason for our very existence. Being a Christian's hard. And if it's not, then you're doing it wrong. And we need help. It is impossible for us to make it through this life plowing through this concrete 
without someone. But here's the great news. If you're here and you're a believer, if you belong to Christ, you'll never be alone. Not in the dry times, not in the harsh realities of life. The Spirit of the Almighty will always walk with you. I'm very thankful that we have a Father who doesn't promise peace, but promises presence. And through that, we can make it. And through that, we might even make it with a smile on our face. Because I don't want to paint this picture that there's no joy in life, no happiness. What I want to paint is life is hard. It's dry. So many things suck the spiritual life out of us. But we have a, a God who's there through everything. And I want you to see that from Genesis to Revelation, that this is not some thing that I've conjured up, or this is not a one-time thing for the Lord, but this is what He has done from creation to the coming of the new heaven and the new earth. This is who God is. It's a God of presence, regardless of circumstances. Now, the idea for this sermon came from a book by Nancy Guthrie called Even Better Than Eden. And so, I say that for a couple of reasons. One, if you want to just take a nap and go read that book. Sleep now, pick the book up later, you're going to be great, okay? But also just to, to understand that, that other people see this in Scripture, okay? And so as we work through all these passages that we, we're going to look at, I want you to be reminded of the one who's walking through the wasteland with you. Creation's beautiful, okay? And that's not what I'm referring to when I say wasteland. But when you start years and years of trying to walk through this life, pursuing Christ, it gets dry, it gets hard, you come up against questions that you can't answer, you come up against circumstances, you're wondering, what in the world are you up to, Lord? I know a lot of you, I know your story, I know that there are some of you enduring very difficult hardship right now. Some of you are about to begin a journey that scares you to death. Some of you are in the midst of something ugly that nobody else knows about. You have no idea how the Lord's going to get you through it. And so I pray that these passages we're about to look at will encourage you to keep walking faithfully in the peace and joy of God your Father. Okay, so here's the one thing I want you to take away today. One point. If you're a Christian, then there is one who walks with you on your best days and on your worst days. There's one who walks with you when you get it right. There's one who walks with you when the wheels fall off. And how do we know this? Because of God's breathed word tells us this is true. That he's not just going to be with you on the mountaintops. He's not just going to be with you on the good days. He is with you every step of the way. Even to the ends of the earth. So let me pray and then let's, let's dive into Genesis. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Holy Spirit, would you speak through your word? And may, be the, may the name of Christ be exalted here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
All right, so let's look at this first passage in Genesis. I think this is pretty interesting. Never really thought about this before until reading uh, Nancy Guthrie's book. But I'm going to read Genesis 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, this is hard for me to comprehend. Because I think when something is created, something is formed, all my mind has is it it has to have a form, right? It has to look like something. But the Bible says it's empty. It's, It's lifeless. That it's really uninhabitable. Okay, and there's no sin here. It's just the way that it was made at the beginning. But the Hebrew translated here in Genesis 1 and 2 literally means it's a wasteland and it's empty. It's nothingness. It's dark. And there's no life. Now think back to what T.S. Eliot just said. Walking through this life, do you feel that sometimes? Do you feel the darkness? Do you feel the nothingness at times? Do you feel the lack of life? But right there in that moment, here, here's the good news. Here's the hope. The Spirit is hovering right there in the midst of that. In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the nothingness, in the midst of the uninhabitable wasteland that has been created, the Spirit says, I'm ready to do something beautiful. And maybe you're here, and that's your situation. It's dark, have no idea what's going to happen. But if you are Christ's, If you belong to the Heavenly Father, the Spirit is with you, waiting to transform that darkness, that nothingness, that lack of life into something beautiful. And we see that, right? I mean, the next few verses after this are creation. And it's amazing. I mean, the sun, the moon, the billions of stars, which the psalmist says God named every single one, the oceans that we haven't even fully explored yet, the mountains, Antarctica. I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about all that God created and the beauty that came out of this void. But that's not a one-time thing, right? I mean, that's not God, this was not, he's not a one-hit wonder where we did creation and then we just step back and you're just on your own from that point. No, he's, he's with us taking those voids, taking that ugliness, creating something beautiful. Not only did he do that in creation, he did that for his children. He did that for Israel. Look at Deuteronomy 32. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read verses 9 through 13. But remember, all these are on that handout. So we come to Deuteronomy 32. This is labeled in my Bible as Moses' song. He's nearing the end of his life, and he's kind of recounting Israel's history, and he starts by talking about how faithful God is. And as you're reading, you're hoping like they're going to, Israel's going to respond like God has been really faithful. Come on, Israel, be really faithful in return. But that's not the case. As a matter of fact, Moses starts with the faithfulness of God, and then he changes gears and he starts talking about how sinful Israel is. I want to pick up in verse 9 and read verses 9 through 13. Listen to this language with 
Genesis 1 in mind. But the Lord's portion is His people. We stop right there. This is an encouraging passage. But let's keep on going. Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert. And in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, burying them on pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field. And he suckled him with the honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock. Sometimes we end up in voids. Sometimes it's dark, because this is just a broken place in which we live in. Sometimes we end up in a void, and sometimes we end up in dark places, because our own rebellious hearts take us to those places. Here's the, here are the children of Israel. God has been faithful to them, blessed them. And why are they in the wilderness in the first place? Because they're disobedient. Because of their sin. And it says here, Moses says that, look, even in the howling waste of the wilderness, that should sound familiar, where there's hurt and brokenness and voids. That's not the end of Israel's story, right? I mean, we know the whole story. But we stop here in the middle of it and we think, is God right to walk away from them? I mean, even in, if he's blessed them so much and they have done nothing but rebel, would, could we say, God, it's not fair for you to walk away? Absolutely not. That, that would have been fair. How about just pouring wrath out on these rebellious people? Would that have been fair? It seems fair. But here's what God did. With Israel, rebellious in the middle of their sin, Israel. Listen to these words. God encircled them. He cared for them. Like an eagle that flutters over its young. Like the spirit hovering over the waters. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't pour out His wrath. It says He led them to a high place where they ate produce and honey. And not honey from a honeycomb, honey from a rock. In the hard harshness, God pours out blessing. He rescues His people. This is our story. You and I are part of Israel. God takes their hopelessness in that wilderness and He turns it into an outpouring of His blessing. And like I said, you may be here and you may have a, a, a tons of, of, of wilderness that you're dealing with. Health, money, family. There seems like no way out. But church, listen, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ... Even in the midst of your wilderness, even in the midst of a wilderness caused by a broken world, even in the midst of a wilderness caused by your rebellious heart, God encircles you. He cares for you. 
He promises to rescue you. Folks, that's the story of grace. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But that's what we get. Because our God is good. How do we get that? Let's look at Matthew chapter 3. Because several hundred years after these words of Moses were written down, God would send one, the one, the truth, the life, who's going to radically change the wilderness forever. We pick up with the story in Matthew 3. This is John the Baptist. Get a picture of, of the herald. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, don't, don't miss that. Where is he preaching? The wilderness. For, he, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So here we are again in the wilderness, and John the Baptist is saying, Don't worry about the wilderness. There's one coming. Get ready. He's going to take your nothingness and he's going to fill it till you overflow. Get ready. He is going to be everything in the midst of your void. John the Baptist so understands what's about to happen that there's about to be radical change, radical hope. That he says, this is, such, this is such great news. This is such an, an unbelievable Savior. I'm not even worthy to bend down and tie his shoelaces. And so King Jesus is heralded by John the Baptist in the midst of the wilderness. This morning, even if you're in the midst of a mess, a wilderness, a wandering away from God... It's my prayer that you'll hear the herald calling out, come to Jesus. Changes everything. Jesus comes to this earth, he's baptized, and then look at the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit, and where did he go? Right into the middle of the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Folks, he knows about the wilderness. He knows about the brokenness. He knows about the aches of the heart. He knows about those things that keep you up at night. He knows about those things that you have to hide from everybody and just cry about. He knows those things. He entered into those to save you, to rescue you, to bring you to our Heavenly Father. I mean, just think of all the aches and pains. He was hungry in Matthew chapter 4 after the temptation. John 4, he's thirsty, he's exalted, he sits down by a well to rest. He's betrayed by Judas. He's abandoned by his closest friends. He's even abandoned by his father at one point on the cross. He has to look death square in the face when his Best friend Lazarus dies. And of course, when he suffers his own horrific death on the cross, he 
knows the pain physically, emotionally. He knows anxiety. He knows worried. He entered that for you. To bring glory to His Father and to rescue you from yourself. To rescue me from my rebellious heart. He knows. And I wish T.S. Eliot was here so I could say, this is the one you see walking with you. He walks beside you as a sympathetic friend. He sent, sent the Spirit to hover over you, to live in you, to bring you hope, and to give you peace even if you're in the midst of the most awful wilderness you've ever experienced. Church, hear this. There is no conceivable wasteland that you will ever enter where God is not there. You cannot think up or create a scenario, if you are His, if He has His grip on you, you will never enter a moment, a circumstance, whether that's because of this broken world of your own sinful heart, you will never, ever experience any of those moments without the presence of the Creator. You can't wonder to a place where God is not. You can't dig a hole deep enough where God is not. He took a dark, void wasteland and He made it into something that's unimaginably beautiful. I mean, go stick your feet in the salt water and look out across that vast ocean. and Watch that sun go down. And think about how God took something that was uninhabitable and made it mind-blowingly beautiful. He's with you. And that's not dependent upon your quiet times or how well you're loving your neighbor. And those things are important. But His presence with you does not depend on those things. His presence with you depends on the fact that His Son crawled on a cross for a bunch of people who would rather spit in His face. And He died. So you could know your Creator. So you could live with Him. So you could commune with Him. And what's amazing is that with usness. And that's a word I made up, by the way. That with usness that we currently experience is just a taste of the new heaven and the new earth. Let me read this last passage in Revelation. This is where it gets really good, okay? John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's a lot about this world that causes tears. A lot. But folks, sometimes tears don't need theology. Tears don't need counseling and tears don't need rebuke. Sometimes tears just need somebody. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But you and I need somebody. We need the presence of our Father. There are countless times where my kids have cried and had issues that I couldn't fix. But it brought them great comfort for me just to hold them. Your Father doesn't have that kind of problem. Not only can He hold you, He can fix everything. Sometimes He doesn't do that, though. Sometimes He doesn't fix everything. Sometimes He does. Regardless, though, He will never, ever stop holding you. I mean, if He gave His only Son... To die for you. Why will he not give us. All things. Through that same son. One of those things that he gives us. The greatest thing he gives us. Is himself. That's true now. That's true forever. You will ne- if you are. In Christ. You will never know a day. Without the presence of God. And one day it's going to be awesome because your faith is going to be reality. and You're going to be looking at Jesus square in his face. You're not going to have to wonder if God is with you anymore or not because he's going to be wiping the tears from your eyes. You're going to be praising him around the throne with people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So regardless of your void or your wilderness, your harsh, dry wasteland, brothers and sisters, you have one who walks beside you. Not based on your goodness, but based on the one who entered the wilderness, conquered the wilderness, and died to make you his own. So today as we leave here, I want you to go as an encouraged believer because you have the presence of God. And I want you to go to those people who don't have that same encouragement. Who are trying to do this life all by themselves and it's impossible. Tell them about the Father. Who will take you in His arms and love you for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. How we forget something as simple as your presence. Shame on us. Shame on our rebellious hearts. Shame on the tempter who pulls our attention in so many other directions than on your presence, on who you are and your goodness, your blessing, your faithfulness, even when we are faithless. Father, would you fill us with your spirit? So much so that we want to go and we want to tell other people. That we want to serve the least of those. That we want to walk across the street and plead with our neighbor to know you. 
Father, whatever might be going on here today in the hearts of these folks, would you rescue them from their darknesses, their voids, their wastelands? Would you do that through the blood of your Son who rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son that you love? And it's in his name we pray. Amen.